Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. For this final episode of season one, we're kind of changing things up a little bit. We have been focusing on U.S. mass-based shootings, right, Sarah? Absolutely, yes. However, we know mass shootings are not unique to the United States. And as long as there are bad people, there's always going to be a global aspect to the mass shootings. So this week, Sarah has challenged me. Now, I've challenged you to a case that's from my little old sleepy neck of the woods in New Zealand. And it's set in a town called Aramoana, which you know is a challenge to say in itself, I think, for anyone who's not from New Zealand. Have you ever even heard of Aramoana before I mentioned it, though, Catherine? No, not at all. In fact, if it weren't for the Disney movie Moana, I wouldn't even probably know how to pronounce it properly. So this is going to be kind of like an FBI ride along. We get to see how you're going to come at a case that you've never actually been on the doorstep of, so to speak. And I'm really interested to see how you determine what the salient facts are to pull out. I think you've got a name for that in the FBI. Is it the after action report? Oh, somewhat. After action is when you look back, but you also decide what you did right and what you did wrong, what you could change for next time. So we'll call this after action light because it's important to do the after action because it takes a long time to find out what happens. And I think that we're going to see even here today that this is a good example of It just takes time to put together the facts. What would you hope to glean from doing an after-action light version once an active shooting is actually over? When we have a chance to focus on an incident like this, even one that occurred a long time ago, it really gives us a chance to kind of consider just a whole host of things. What prompted the killer to strike? Are we still facing those kinds of challenges today? What did the civilians do? Have we taught them anything different? Did, Did we learn any lessons from that? What did the police response look like? What kind of changes in the response are there now? Are there still so many big challenges? So there's a lot we can learn from that. Okay, well, for a change, I'm actually closer to this case than you are, Catherine. And I think it's probably a good time to point out to our global listeners that you know, mass shooting incidents, they're very uncommon in New Zealand. In fact, I think I, think I can only think of two in my lifetime. But, you know, I'm sure you'd agree that's too, too many. So let me paint you a picture of Aramoana because its geography actually does play a hand in the way things unfold in the saga. So picture, if you will, a teeny tiny coastal settlement. It's 27 kilometers away from Dunedin, which for the residents of Aramoana is essentially the big smoke. It's the closest city, which is in the South Island of New Zealand. The 300 or so permanent residents that live there are flanked by hills and beautiful bushlands. And when they aren't making the most of the ocean on their doorsteps, they can look across to the opposite peninsula of the harbour mouth and see the giant royal albatrosses swooping along the coastline. And if you haven't seen an albatross, think seagull on steroids, basically. So when I think of Aramoana, I think of this really beach kind of hippie-vibed enclave. And it's only got one road in and out, which is an important point to note. In fact, the name Aramoana is Maori for pathway of the sea because it's really the only place to go once you arrive in Aramoana. Maori? Is that a language? Maori? Yes, it is. Maori? Yes, it's- I'm, so- I'm showing my ignorance. I apologize. No, you've never heard of Maori before at all? Wait, Maori, is this the dance that they do? The dance that I've seen the 
the soccer players do. Oh, so much to teach you, Catherine. (laughs) So much to teach you. Okay, Okay, so Maori uh, is... That's a whole other show. I'll give you the helicopter view. Maori are the indigenous people of New Zealand. I'm actually part Maori myself, in fact. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of this curious genetic cocktail of Maori and Irish Catholic (laughs) mushed together. Okay. And like you say, you probably do know it most famously for what is called the, the haka, which is the Maori war dance. Yes. Right? That's where I've heard it. Yeah, and you love sports. Do you watch rugby at all? Not a lot. It's so fun to watch because there's just That's people so piling brutal. on top of each other. But I remember the haka. I didn't remember the Maori. Hmm. I got it. It's all coming together now. So cultural lesson over. Let's go back to our Moana. And I think the key things to remember going forward, the remoteness of our Moana is key to the story. And in particular, that one road in and out. That's the where. And hopefully set the scene for you, Catherine. But tell me, where do you start with the what with this kind of case? When you haven't got any access to witnesses, police files, as you would have when you were with the FBI. You're right, because of the FBI, for the research to, to look at mass shootings, we'd call up one of our offices someplace in the United States and say, hey, can you go over to this police department and just get the police file for us, ask them if they could lend it to us. So we were able to get very accurate facts. So I do like everybody else does here. I look for what's been written. And here and now, you can do that on internet, of course. So newspaper articles written at the time, picking the information and picking out is very critical for me. Uh, Academic papers that were written later on and things that might involve interviews. So it's definitely a little bit of work. I wasn't familiar with this shooting, hardly even the name. I'm going to rely on something I rarely am limited to, which what we call in the intelligence world as open source data. So interviews, newspapers, things that are just out in the public. What Sarah didn't tell you, my dear listeners, is that she gave me basically 24 hours to put my data together because she didn't want me reaching back to any of my law enforcement partners worldwide. (laughs) I don't want to make it too easy for you. Well, my question is, how much do you then trust those sources to give you accurate information? I love that you asked me that because people believe everything they read, right? And so I I did actually pull out some things that I thought conflicting from what I read that I wanted to mention as we go on. But material written at the time, we would give much more skepticism to, not because I think the reporting is bad, the reporters don't mean well. Think about what you just told me about this location. It's a very remote location. So you're going to have a game of kind of telephone, like when we were all kids sitting around the multicolored rug at elementary school, where someone says something to somebody, somebody says something to somebody. So we have reporters in the city several hours away or continents away, filling stories based on conversations with a firefighter who talked to his brother, who talked to a neighbor, who talked to a police officer's cousin, and so on and so forth. So contemporary stories, momentary stories can be very filled with speculation in some cases. People want to fill the cracks. The first person fills the crack saying, I think it was. And the next person fills the crack saying, I heard it was. And the next Mm. person fills the crack saying it was. Talking of cracks, let's crack into it. Tell me what happened in our Moana. I'll tell you what I think I know happened. How's that? Mm, I'm going to point out that this happened a really long time ago. For those of you who maybe listened to our Columbine episode, which you know was in 99, this was 10 years before that nearly. So a long time ago. So on November 13th, uh, 1990, an argument between two neighbors developed and one of the neighbors went into his house and came out with a weapon. So we're going to call these two neighbors, Gary and the killer. So Gary and the killer get into an argument and the killer goes into his house, he gets a weapon and kind of with minimal notice, he raises his rifle and he drops Gary dead in his tracks out in the front lawn. Gary's two girls and their girlfriend they were playing with run into Gary's house to run away from him. And the killer shoots at the girls, injures the older of the two of Gary's daughters, who's a nine-year-old. The nine-year-old escapes running not too far away to the nearby home of the other girl's mother. She later explains publicly that she told the mother that the dad's neighbor had just gone crazy. So the mother calls 111 which is Sarah. It's the emergency number for New Zealand. In case there's any four-year-olds listening who need to learn the emergency number. So the mother calls 111. And while this is happening, the killer sets Gary's house on fire. Nice guy. And then outside begins shooting at other people. 
He fires at a van that drives by. He fires at a woman running down the street. He kills two six-year-old boys on the street and their father and a friend who were driving from a day fishing. I, I learned because of this what a ute is. Am I getting that right? Local yeah. slang for a utility vehicle. So that everybody was in the ute. That's what the news stories say. Oh, there was a ute nearby. Mm-hmm. And that the boys may have been in or near the ute having gone fishing with the dad. Yeah. It's also very common that you would throw the kids in the back of the ute if you were going fishing or down to the beach. It's a little small town. So the kids would be in the back of the ute on the flatbed. That's where they were. And no cover, obviously, in the back of a ute. No cover. Listen to you. You are Mm. right out of the movies. Exactly. No cover. And so you're right. So in this case, our killer actually is out on the street. It's a smaller area, as you mentioned, very small town. He walks into some homes. He kills some elderly occupants of those homes. He shot two people who came on the street to see what was going on. He went back into his house. And at that point, he kind of begins what we would think of as he moves into a defensive posture and he begins to protect himself. He's going to go back to his house. And at this time, remember the police have been called, right? The local police officer who was closest, Police Sergeant Stuart Guthrie, he's assigned to the Port Chalmer Police District. We actually took the time to look up on a map. It's about 11 kilometers away, which is about seven miles. It's maybe 15 minutes by road. And he has a 38 handgun with him. He goes to the scene. There's another hunting rifle that's available. I believe it's a shotgun and hands it to another man who is, I think, a firefighter, joins him. And then eventually two other constables also arrive. So at this point, I know they are clearly going to be hampered by darkness. They surround the killer's house and they try to get him to come out. They see him moving inside a little bit here and there, and they find him at one point outside. And when Sergeant Guthrie encounters him, he fires a warning shot into the sky. And though the killer yells, don't shoot, uh, at the same time, reports are that the killer in turn then does fire at the sergeant and kills him. So at this point, other departments and equipment are arriving. It's dark out. The killer is initially hiding in the house, but he vacates and he moves into another area outside and actually takes a nap. They know he eats something. In the meantime, the police, the news media, political figures, and plenty of firepower show up all over from New Zealand. I have to say, let me pause here and tell you, the strangest thing that I read was Mm -hmm. that the special tactics group that was coming in from the big city, as they say, They couldn't find military transport, in your case, Air Force transport. So they took the first commercial business flight out of town the next day. So they're carrying, not without controversy, submachine guns and tear gas onto this commercial flight. I read that too. Can you imagine lining up at the airport and then getting on your plane and being stuck next to one of those massive special tactics guys? I think the police commissioner was also on the flight down with them. It didn't surprise me. My brother is an Air Force pilot in the New Zealand Air Force, and we aren't equipped for that sort of thing because we're just not used to it, I don't think. Perhaps now we are. That was uh, yeah, my hope probably so. true. And by the next day, they had brought in you know, a helicopter to, to look overhead. And by daylight, the police really start to go door to door. They're looking for victims. They're looking for the killer. But for a town that size, it took until nearly 5 p.m. that night for them to find his location. And at that point, a firefight occurs. And he survives, firefight meaning a gunfight. And then sometime within like the next hour, so like from 5 to 6 p.m., he decides that he's going to leave his hiding place in the house. And he comes streaming out at the police out his front door yelling, kill me, just kill me. And he's shot five times, doesn't die immediately, but dies a short time later in an ambulance. And I will just say, remember, he lit Gary's house on fire and that three little girls had run to the house, but only one had escaped. The other two girls were found on deceased in Gary's burned out house. So in all 13 victims. So sad. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection? 
because it was digital or maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. How did you find actually piecing all that information together? How accurate was that open source information, do you think? Well, this is for me, the frightening thing about open source information. People say, well, I read it and it must be true. And that might have been true 100 years ago, but probably not even then. And although today we think of media as being very straightforward and very sacrosanct, it's still a kind of a garbage in, garbage out, right? They're still dealing with what they have. So here's my first lesson about open source. There's reporting that says that what triggered the issue between these two neighbors was that Gary's dog was on his property. And this may have been something that occurred a lot. And so he was mad at Gary because the dog was on his property. And I read that very clearly. And one of the first things that I read, and then after I continued to dig through open source, I found out that maybe the neighbor was angry over the daughters being on the property. I was like, okay, wait a minute. If the daughters are on the property, okay, did somebody just misinterpret? Was the information completely wrong or was somebody translating it into a different language? And I don't know. So either the daughters were wandering on the property or the dog was wandering on the property. And it, it's hard to say. And really, if you think about it, the neighbor pursued the daughters into the house. So maybe he was mad at the daughters. But either way, open source. I had no idea. There was also open source data that said that the daughter was shot in the leg. And then there was other data that said the daughter was shot in the chest. Mm. And then there was also source information that said that he shot the other girls before he set fire. And then there were other open sources that said that he uh, just lit the house on fire and that maybe the girls were hiding in there. And then Mm. there was also a spot that said the killer hid in a shed. And then there was one that said he hid in a crib. So the open source data all over the place. Yeah. I have to confess that after I set you this task, I cheated and uh, I watched a movie that was made about Aramoana called Out of the Blue, which is available on Amazon Prime if anybody wants to watch it. It's based on a book written by Senior Sergeant Bill O'Brien. And it's a great movie in its own right, really focuses on the community's story, not the killers, which is obviously what we like to do. The other thing is it's actually set in Aramoana. So if you're trying to visualize what this little town is like, it's actually set there. And when you're talking about him getting mad at somebody going over his property, those properties don't have fences. He literally had stones piled as a boundary delineator. So in the movie, it actually has the daughter cutting across and that's what prompts it. And I think that's really interesting because Again, we don't know. Was it the dog or was it the daughter? Well, Gary and the killer are both deceased. So they couldn't really get what started the argument. They were only two in the yard. That's fascinating. I'm so going to look that movie up out of the blue on Amazon Prime. Oh, if only I'd seen that. I wouldn't have even had to do my research. I could have just pretended. I do my research like I did all of my schoolwork, find the movie version and watch it. <laughs> You're a nightmare student. Okay. <laughs> don't tell my daughter that. No. Uh, oh, gosh. <laughs> we won't tell anyone. So what did you see as an FBI agent that I might not have seen and or thought about? Immediately what jumped out at me was time, the time of day it happened and the roads. And let me tell you why those are critical. And I actually took the time to look this up, though I didn't have a lot of time to do it because I felt the need to sleep in that 24 hours. The police reporting indicated that 
the shooting had started sometime around 7.30. And it appears that sunset was sometime before 8.30. So someplace less than an hour, right? And so even though the shooting reportedly started at 7.30, there was a bit of winding around. We know that the, the daughter ran to a house. So we're not even sure what time the police actually got a phone call, right? Either way, I knew immediately, okay, sunset is critical. I think back to when there was the assault on the U.S. Capitol here in January 6th of 2021 right here. I remember looking at the clock, the Capitol was filled with hundreds of people. There were thousands more outside. And I remember thinking, because this was January, there's about 30 minutes left before sunset. And then that's going to turn for law enforcement, this into a nightmare situation. And here, the shooting began less than an hour before sunset. And that meant that the police were going to have to contend with darkness coming. We see this in many instances. We saw this with the confrontation here. If you recall, there was a terrible bombing at the Boston Marathon. Two bombs went off, lots of people injured and uh, killed. And there was a manhunt. Part of the challenge was that the individuals were found as the daylight was ending. And they had to pursue an individual into the darkness, into a small neighborhood in a small town. And so victims are able to protect themselves, but also subjects are able to hide in darkness. And the second thing was the roads. This is very challenging in rural areas. Think about what a nightmare it is to get emergency vehicles in and out, not just uh, to get that first police car there, but everybody who has a car is on the road then. And they get out of their car and they leave their car. Firefighters can't get through. We even have similar challenges in any metropolitan city. I remember the police chief at the Los Angeles International Airport telling me that after they had a shooting at Los Angeles International Airport, they had to tow police vehicles off of the street in front of the terminals so they could reopen Los Angeles International Airport because they couldn't find a way to get the cars off the street. So keep your car off the road. Roadways are what saves people's lives. And I immediately thought about sunsets coming and those roads are going to be jammed and we're not even going to know how to get ambulances Mm. to the town. Well, it's interesting, if you do go back and watch that movie, you'll see that when we're talking about Moana, we're talking like a handful of streets. There's probably six little streets, just winding little streets at the end of this peninsula. And then the only road in and out is this winding coastal road. And they've set up this ambulance across the main road. And that's where everybody sort of flocked to. And that became the barrier into the town. But of course, on the other side of that, there was injured people that were left in the town without being able to get to ambulance help at all because they'd blocked the road uh, deliberately because they were trying to keep people safe, I guess, and he was still on the yeah. on the loose. Well, he was on the loose, right? So they, mm. they create a perimeter, but it is such a challenge uh, to decide, okay, how wide is that perimeter and how do you save the people who might be bleeding out inside of it? It's a, yeah. it's a challenge for law enforcement and for any first responders and for people who don't know what to do, right? Mm. They're stuck. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. So what struck you about this particular incident as being the piece of information you'd want the public to know? That's a good question. You're always making me think. One of the things that I think about is everybody wants a story, right? I mean, you said you saw it in a movie. We read books. You know, uh, we're telling a story just like we are now. We're telling a story. We try to 
very hard to focus on facts. But I think that when you read about an incident, you are reading a story. That's how we absorb. And I've been on the scene of so many shootings and explosions and bank robberies. And the stories at the time are nowhere nearly as dramatic as they are when they're on paper or in a movie or magazine. So stick with me because I found a lot of storytelling language. I wrote some of it down because I really wanted you to see what I mean by storytelling. So I remember reading that people, quote unquote, watched in horror. I'm not sure who they spoke to who watched in horror, but they said the shooter had amassed a cachet of firearms and ammunition. I see that all the time. They also said the killer was a, quote unquote, avid reader of warfare, weaponry, and survivalist literature, which sounds very dramatic. But then if you go back and you look at the interview of the bookstore owner, where he was a regular customer for seven years, the bookstore owner said he was a fan of military books and Soldier of Fortune magazine. See the different language? So you're kind of being led into the writer's story. The ending of the movie, Out of the Blue, is case in point, actually. So your research came up with the ending that the killer had died in the ambulance after a shootout. The movie's ending is both different and definitely more dramatic than that. And I'm not saying that the movie isn't correct or that your research isn't correct. The truth is we just don't know. And I think it's important to remember because I'm reminded of our Columbine episode, which is episode eight. And that myth and legend that surrounded Columbine was far and away from the facts and the reality of the incident. And that myth still has a devastating impact today, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Every week that name Columbine comes up, it's used as a rallying cry. And this idea of what the shooters were, I think we don't create necessarily those same myths about the victims, but it's more dramatic for the story to create a myth about the killer to say he or she is this kind of person. And some of that is the license to create a character that you're going to remember, or you're going to dislike, or in the case of Columbine, that you're going to like and want to admire and you want to copy, which we don't want either. This is the first case that we've done that's outside of the US this season. And it gives us the opportunity to ask those questions that lots of us outsiders want to know the answers to. So what are the differentiating points between New Zealand gun law and the US Mm -hmm. gun law? And how did incidents like Aramoana change the gun laws in our country? And would that have happened in the US? Would there have been a reaction where laws were changed? Well, that's a good question. I teach an entire class at DePaul University on this subject. So if I can take a semester of training and speak to it for just a few seconds. In the United States, gun laws are always kind of changing. And unlike in New Zealand, there's federal laws and there's a federal constitution, but also we have 50 states and every state has its own version of laws. And if they don't conflict with the federal laws, then those laws can also apply. But the other thing that's relevant uh, is the U.S. Constitution. The foundation of our laws here includes a provision, an amendment that many of you are familiar with in our Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment. It's just a handful of words. It's constantly debated what it means. Actually, the U.S. Supreme Court right now is debating what this actually means with regard to certain aspects of it. But the Second Amendment itself says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Four clauses that don't go together, don't make an English sentence, and have been interpreted constantly for a couple hundred years differently because they were very poorly constructed, as any grammarian could tell you. But despite that, there you know are restrictions. There are many very controversial issues with regard to guns. But I think in the United States, we appreciate the reality that we have one of the highest per person deaths mm-hmm. of firearms, no matter how you count it. And we have a higher rate than any other country besides those at war. But now New Zealand mm-hmm. laws are different, right? As I understand it, that law, the right to bear arms, it doesn't exist. There isn't a right to carry guns, though you can get a permit to own and carry firearms in certain circumstances. Even you know, law enforcement don't routinely carry guns. That's not something I grew up with. And, and I think that's an, an unending conversation about who should carry guns, particularly as first responders. I will say that after this shooting, there was a desire to tighten the laws. The killer was found with rifles and ammunition, a suppressor. Some of them were semi-automatic rifles. And there was a desire to ban at that time those types of weapons. But it took some time, right? This was back in 1990. 
And there were some changes, but then Christchurch happened. And you know about Christchurch. So. Yeah, of course I do. I've got family that live in Christchurch, and I'm going to be really interested next season to actually have a look at that closely because it's known as a terrorist attack. But I think that you'd probably be more inclined to call it a hate crime. So I'm interested to delve into that one a bit more. But no matter what you call it, it was a shocking and utterly heartbreaking event. But you're the details person. So fill us in on the details for the listeners so they can get up to speed on it. Well, I was thinking more about the legal aspect of it. So I didn't pull Mm. all the details about Christchurch. But for our listeners, it was certainly the worst situation that ever occurred in this country. 51 Muslim worshippers killed in a mosque. And that was so gut-wrenching that it did uh, prompt the change of laws in New Zealand. And because of that, it led to the immediate end of over-the-counter sales of semi-automatic weapons. And I would say pretty dramatic changes in the firearms laws. For example, Christchurch was in March of 2019, I believe. In 2020, they passed a firearms registry law that licensed holders would be required to update any time they buy and sell a weapon. Now, the fascinating thing is that's license holders. Everything in New Zealand is based on you get a license if you want to have a gun. Here in the United States, there are no licenses for holding a gun. So it's a very different delineation. There's been a lot of discussion about whether or not in the United States there should be a gun licensing registry. Many people are opposed to it. Although here in the United States, if you think about it, there's a very standard way that you get to drive a car. You have to have a license to drive a car. And many people say, we should have to have a license to own a firearm. So after Christchurch, they banned high-risk firearms that were the short semi-automatic rifles. They tightened rules for gun dealers. They cut the licensing from 10 years to five years. A whole bunch of different circumstances made it harder to keep that license, to get it renewed, things like that. And they complemented this law that was passed after Aramoana that had banned military-style semi-automatic firearms. That had been passed in response to Aramoana, but not until Christchurch happened. When Christchurch happened, immediately they banned those semi-automatics, even though they had wanted to do it years before. It is definitely different there because in order to buy a gun, you have to get a license. In order to get a license, you have to be deemed fit and proper, and you have to have a background check done, and that's really the gateway. But then you can buy what's available, and like the Christchurch shooter owns, I believe, five weapons. And I will say this. I did look this up. In New Zealand, almost everybody who applies for a license is granted a license. Interesting, interesting. And we're going to dig into this in season two and look at the differences in countries' gun laws and whether it correlates to more or less violence, I think, is quite interesting to uncover. And if you want to know more about the Christchurch mosque shooting, there's a really excellent podcast that had me in absolute floods of tears when I was listening to it. And it's called Our Darkest Day. And it's told from the victims and the victims' families of the incident. Really hard listen. But the families wanted the memories of their loved ones kept alive through telling their stories. So it's one to listen to. But let me ask you, do you think that the New Zealand laws are better or worse than the US when it comes to who can access guns legally? Well, I think that definitely our countries are two different animals. New Zealand is a lot smaller. New Zealand doesn't have a constitutional construction about weapons. And I say that having not read your constitution and where the United States clearly does. So I think that better or worse, the outcome is the same, right? There are weapons there. I think it's a question of if the weapons are there, which system gives us a better opportunity to track somebody who maybe shouldn't be allowed to hold a weapon? And mm. I think that's really the question is not are the laws better, but what is the, is the impact of the laws? I think as a legal scholar, I'd rather plow through them a little bit more off season and kind of compare. But mm. I, I think there's no question that there are more shootings per person here. And I will say that most handgun deaths in the United States are, well, at least half of them are by suicide. That's its own danger, right? The fact that the weapons are available and people use them kill themselves. I think it's going to be interesting to take a look at that gateway to getting the the guns in the first place and see how different countries' screening checks relate to the gun violence as well. We've seen it in the US. You've got your NICS system, which is supposed to be your catch-all for people to be able to get access to legally acquired weapons. And I didn't actually clock that you guys don't have licenses that we do. That's interesting. But to get that license, you've got to go through a New Zealand check system. Interested to know whether you got a feeling if our system was as flawed as perhaps, and I'm 
just throwing it out there, the next system seems to be. Well, I'm not com- necessarily comparing the two, but I think maybe it would be fair to compare the two. It is a gateway, right? And the next system is a gateway. Your licensing is a, is a gateway, but there's not really a lot of great ways to take weapons away from people who become a danger to themselves or others. And I think that's the challenge that we have with weapons. Nobody minds somebody who wants to have a gun for sport. Everybody minds somebody who wants to have a gun to kill people. Yes, very much. I'm reminded of your saying very early on in our series, which was, I'm not against guns. I'm against guns killing, killing people. People, exactly. Yeah. I've just with completely guns. botched up your that's amazing okay. quote. No, hardly <laughs> at all. Here's my question for you, Sarah. Was this your origin story on true crime? Ooh, good question. You were young. Yeah, I was. So I was 15. I don't think consciously that I've made the connection between that being possibly my origin story, but I do vividly remember when it happened because at the time, my family lived in a smaller town, even smaller than Dunedin, a little place called Invercargill, which I think McJagger went to once and (laughs) called it the asshole of the world. And at the time, he probably wasn't wrong. It's since changed. But so we were living down there and my dad had just got a job in Dunedin as the principal of a high school. And he had moved up there when this shooting happened and we were still Mm -hmm. finishing our year at school and he was commuting back and forward. I didn't really have a concept of geography of Dunedin. So when it happened, I hadn't got in my mind how close or far Dunedin was from Aramoana. But what I did know is that my dad was in Dunedin at that time. And that was probably what stuck with me was that fear that, oh my goodness, he is in danger. So I don't know that it was my origin story, but it struck me how close we can get to evil. And it wasn't something that was overseas. It was one step away. That's how it is, right? We always, mm. No matter where, there's, there's bad people everywhere. Yeah, and, so uh, true. But one thing that did strike me about this case in particular was the way that they contained the scene because we touched on it earlier. It was very clear in the movie version of this that there were injured people that were bleeding and stuck inside the perimeter. The police were in there hunting this killer and actually having conversations with these people that were injured but unable to get to them. What is police protocol when it comes to containing these kind of situations? Is that secondary to looking after the people that are injured? It is. It's kind of like, uh, think when you're on an airplane and they say, put the oxygen mask on yourself first before helping the person next to you. I think police uh, protocol is to get to the threat first and end the threat Now, I will say that here in the States, a lot of departments have worked very hard to modify that focus, especially in the last few years, to ensure that law enforcement is trained in medical care that would involve, especially in a trauma situation, stopping somebody from bleeding out. It doesn't take a lot of minutes for somebody to bleed out, and then there's no way to save them. But if you do certain things, like put a tourniquet on, uh, pack a wound so that the bleeding stops you know, there's a possibility that you can save a life. And so police officers are being trained to do that with a consciousness that they may spend five hours in a small town looking for somebody, but in that five hours, somebody can bleed out. And I think that is something that we've learned since the 90s and that we've focused on in training. And that perimeter, think about the circumstances. I know that in time, there were approximately 150 officials, they say, who responded in this case. But in those first hours, there weren't 150. And by darkness, there were still a handful of people who had limited communication abilities. And if somebody was on street A bleeding out, there aren't hundreds of people roaming the ground looking to save people. And when there's a shooter that's live and moving around, nobody's going to pick themselves up and walk down the main street. No. And in the movie, again, I'm, I'm referencing the movie. It was very obvious that they just didn't have the weapons either. They came to the scene and the firefighter was handed an actual weapon from a local. Let me just say, what we know about what law enforcement was facing, they were there in darkness. I'm sure in the movie, they made it clear that there weren't a lot of weapons for the law enforcement side. But when you think about the reality of did they have an opportunity? They didn't even know where the guy was. So even though they didn't have a lot of weaponry, first of all, they couldn't find the guy for a long time. Then when they did find him, he was safely in his house. So they were hunting for him. But when you don't have a weapon, then you're more hesitant on how you hunt. But they couldn't even find the guy. So it isn't that they didn't have the firepower to confront him, I think. But you know, the movie isn't probably going to say that because it doesn't seem as cool. 
Hi listeners, I think you and I have something in common. The fact that you're listening to this gently named podcast, Stop the Killing, suggests that like me, you have an interest in all things true crime. I was lucky enough to be on podcast row at CrimeCon UK 2021 and it was such a success that they're doing it all again. Join me and so many incredible podcasters like They Walk Among Us, Mens Rea, Morbidology, Generation Y, I could go on. But it's not just podcasters, you can hear from the victims and their families, get insight from the police force, meet the police dogs. Listen to how some of the biggest cases are broken, all from the expert criminologists and profilers. So join me on the 11th and 12th of June 2022 in London. Go to crimecon.co.uk and be sure to use the discount code CTHEC. There are early bird prices available for a limited time, so the sooner you purchase, the cheaper your ticket, and you won't regret it. Again, go to crimecon.co.uk and use the code C the C. That's C for con, not C like the ocean. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a look at the killer's background because, as we know, they don't spring out of nowhere. There is a pathway to get to this point. Absolutely. That's so correct. Nobody just snaps. We hear that all the time, but we know that, in fact, nobody just snaps. So don't confuse something that might trigger somebody to act with the behaviors that lead them down a pathway to violence. This guy was angry, right? And often we can see and hear behaviors that show a person is on a bad trajectory. And we hear some here when we talk about this guy. They may have troubles with the law or they may have domestic violence problems, angry with their employees or you know, mental health challenges, all these situations. And then stressors come along, things that may seem to kind of top the person over the edge and they act. That's what happens here, we think. So what did you manage to find out? Oh, well, very challenging in, in many ways. It's funny because like in a small town, people didn't maybe step in and write down all the stuff they at the beginning, right? So now everybody else after that kind of speculate a little bit. But it was a long time ago. And so all the available materials kind of rehashed the same half a dozen facts or so. But here's what I think I can tell you is the oft-repeated story. The killer was a 33-year-old man. He came from a working class uh, family in New Zealand. He was an average student. He was pretty quiet. He graduated from high school. He worked as a farmhand. Uh, we know he had a sister, he had a brother, he had parents. Sometime before he turned 33, his parents died. He was close to his mom. Apparently, she died last. And she died sometime when he was in his late 20s. And around that time, he moved to the family's crib in Aramoana. Notice I'm using the hip language there. Well done on pronunciation there. Thank you. He was working at some point, but he was not working when he was in Aramoana. The neighbors reported that he liked animals. The day of the shooting, we know that he was in town yelling at a bank employee for charging him a $2 fee on a check. We know that he put uh, money down on a new gun. He yelled at a restaurant owner who served him a cold piece of pie. In fact, he told uh, somebody in the restaurant that he was going to come back and get you and blow you away. A very uh, on edge kind of guy. The bookstore owner we mentioned in the store where he frequented uh, did report after the fact that he had a confrontation with this individual previously, one of his employees did, and they had actually gotten kind of a no trespass order issued against him after he apparently brought a shotgun and threatened one of the employees. That was about eight months before the shooting. And I only saw that in like one reporting. So who knows about the accuracy on it? So mm -hmm. that's what we know. Okay. Well, yeah, you're right. The information is slim. 
And I know it's all open source information, so we have to take that into account. You said the killer was 33. I thought he was 37 from the information that I'd researched. So it's already there straight away. Who knows what's going on? But I wanted to add also to the slim pickings of information that there is also sources that report that he may have been suffering from mental illness. Schizophrenia had been mentioned. Whether or not that's true, again, we don't know. But given that information, I see a few little warning signs noting. I like it. Okay. So the first thing that sticks out to me is his overreaction. That's disproportionate reaction to his perceived injustices. So we've got the the $2 fee at the bank that he's blown up about. And then the cold pie, which is actually a crime in New Zealand. We do get very mad about our pies being cold. But, you know, again, totally disproportionate reaction to that. And I'd like to add in that bit, leakage. He's actually saying, I'll be back. I'm going to get you. It's that clear intent that he's telling people he's, I think you use the word telegraphing, don't you? All these things were escalating behaviors. So those are the warning signs that I see, but I'm sure I've missed loads. No, those are great. I think we only have a few facts to work on, but I think you picked out some different facts, but then you tied them to what we consider to make it a warning sign is escalating behavior, disproportionate response to frustrations, right? And probably in this case, uh, this guy lived in this small area. He'd lived there for a number of years and people just considered him a hothead. The idea that he can get angry about something, he's just going on about his day and he is a grievance collector. He is putting one big rock into his backpack after another. Today, it's the dog crossed his property. The next day, it's the daughter who crossed his property. The next day, it's that the pie was cold. And then what Mm. about this $2 check? And how Mm. come he's paying this fee on his check? So these are grievance collectors that everybody is out to get him. And he's angry about that. And so his backpack is getting heavier and heavier and heavier. And so I didn't realize cold pie was a crime in New Zealand, but now I, now I know. A pie is like one of the a Kiwi's five a day, essentially. Oh. Any shop you go into, there's a pie warmer, steak and cheese, steak and onion, you name it, we've got a pie for it. But all joking aside about the pie, I think you've pointed out a really good point, which is that it's right to highlight that dynamic of a small community because it mm-hmm. can be one of two things to different people in that community, can't you? It can be a really small, tight-knit, interconnected, inter-supporting community that pulls everyone together. But if you're a loner and you choose to stay outside that structure, then actually you're essentially isolating in an isolated place. And I think with that, I guess there is less opportunity to gather those puzzle pieces of information that might build a picture of a person who is on a pathway to violence. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. I think when somebody lives in a small community, the people in the area are used to them. They'll say, oh, that's Jimmy. He lives at the end of the block and he kind of keeps to himself. He's got his own issues, but you know, it's all fine. And then something happens and then they say, oh my God, Jimmy just snapped. Well, he didn't. It's probably that people weren't paying super close attention to what Jimmy was doing day to day and they didn't know him well enough to know what his typical behavior was. So it was difficult for them to identify his atypical behavior, those behaviors of concern. It's unfortunate because we see the escalating anger and the potential for violence in just even the few facts that we know. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. My parents live in a very small town. I lived there for a little bit with them. And there's always that person that I was like, that guy's the loner. That's the town loner. If you know that, keep your eyes on it, I guess. That's fair. Yeah. No, okay, I think good. It's fair. A lot of times, I think it's easier for people to relate to if you think about it in terms of suicide. If there's a person who's isolated, they're alone, and they feel that they don't have anything to live for, they don't have anywhere to go, we all are sympathetic towards somebody who we're afraid might commit suicide, and we reach out and talk to that person. I have so many instances where we have people who said, I was going to commit suicide, or I was going to do this crime, but then somebody talked to me, somebody interceded. My teacher said this, my principal said that, the school bus driver said this, and it can turn somebody's life around. So it may sound very dramatic, but it's very accurate that keeping people engaged in the community helps us to keep aware of who they are and whether or not they need more assistance. That's the value of that close-knit community. Mm. Yeah, let's throw some kindness into our daily lives. This was a case that was full of things that were 
awful. So what were the hard lessons that we can take away from it? I think for me, bad people, troubled people struggle in every corner of the world. And when people isolate themselves, all they do is become a powder keg waiting to explode. And that might be an instance like this, but it can also be suicide, as I mentioned, a high risk for any kind of individual. But those individuals, they don't see what's coming. And it's really incumbent on us to reach out. And I think we don't do that. And and maybe that's what happened here, judging by the fact that this person who had a brother and a sister who lived in a small community, but was isolated. And how did that person become so isolated and feel so alone? We can't let people get down that path. And that's really on us. So let's bookend the show with focusing on the moments of bravery and humanity because so many brave people in this. Oh, definitely. Let me tell you my moment of bravery and humanity that struck me so much. Remember I told you that the killer had shot at a van that had driven past the house? He was outside. That van had inside Gary's older daughter who had been shot. And I think that I did read some reporting that said that the house that she had run to was actually Gary's girlfriend's house. And she drove towards Gary's house in the van with Gary's daughter who had been shot in her van. And when he fired at the van, she chose to leave her daughter behind and Gary behind and Gary's other daughter and drive that girl to the hospital to save her life. And she knew she was leaving her own daughter behind Mm. with a killer. In the movie, it starts actually with the three girls being told that they're blending the families together and they're all going to move in together. Gary, the girlfriend, the two daughters, and then the daughter of the girlfriend. Can I just also add my own moment of bravery into this one? Because I don't know if you came across this story, but it was about a 70, I want to say 73-year-old woman who just had a double hip replacement. And she was shot at and was walking towards what was the blazing house at the time with another neighbor. He got shot and ended up being on the ground out in the open. She crawled through the ditch to get to her house with her double hip replacement. She'd lost her crutches by that stage and rang the ambulance, then crawled back to him so he wasn't by himself outside in the open at the risk to herself saw that he was getting worse, crawled back again to her house, rang them and said, please come, he's really getting worse. And they said, you need to lock yourself in the house and stay put. That woman got, I think, a George's cross given to her by the Queen for her bravery. And tragically, her son was there and he actually lost his life. But that woman, you know, couldn't even walk because she'd had this hip replacement. You can see her dragging herself through the ditches. I mean, humanity at its finest. Yeah, definitely tragedy brings out the humanity. I see it time and time again, and that's a great example of it. It's sad, Mm -hmm. but a fantastic example to give you comfort and know that humanity is always going to win out. What would your final message be for us today, Catherine? Well, I think looking back at, at how long ago this occurred, 1990, and I think particularly, obviously, my vision is, is skewed towards the United States. But, you know, we've come such a long ways from what occurred in prevention efforts and even responding, particularly to safety concerns. I said in my book, Stop the Killing, that our podcast initially was based on, I wrote, safety isn't about the odds of whether it will happen. Safety is about being prepared if it does happen. And I think that we're so much more prepared when I think to my parents, my parents lived through World War II and my dad was a, a soldier during World War II. And that kind of tragedy we thought of as occurring kind of somewhere else or to other people. But then the violence that we see here is the kind of violence that is affecting us in our neighborhoods. And I think we've kind of steeled ourselves to be more prepared for it and to work on ways to prevent it, including looking for people who might uh, be suicidal, right? So that we don't have suicidal murder situations. So I know as long as we live on this earth, there are going to be troubled people on this earth, but I think we're doing a better job of preparing for that. So I think that's my final thought is keep preparing for it because otherwise we pay for it in the the long run. 
Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, but also the end of season one. It's it's officially a wrap of Stop the Killing podcast. Thanks for joining us. Watch out for season two because we're going to have previews coming up, which is going to start right back at the beginning. We're going to start with the Texas Tower shooting. That's right. It was a long time ago in the 60s. Long time right. ago. We're also going to be looking at more cases from around the globe and, of course, in the U.S., along with special interviews you really don't want to miss. And uh, as we're still framing up season two, we'd love to hear from you, our lovely listeners, the cases that you want us to untangle. Please do leave your suggestions, leave your questions at our Instagram account, at Stop the Killing Stories. We'd love to get to them. Yeah, I'm excited for season two. And please tell us what you want to hear also. Ask us your questions uh, because I love the challenge. And I think it's important. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and you'll be alerted when we have new episodes coming out. Uh, And if you haven't already, please do go to Apple and leave us a five-star review because that helps discovery. And the more people that hear it, the better. Consider sharing it on social media because all of that is going to help make our community safer, isn't it, Catherine? That's the whole plan. I firmly Mm. believe that we are the ones who can get this done. But you have to believe that. You have to convince your family and your friends. So if you're feeling empowered, encourage others to join on our team. Be empowered to stop the killing. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. Hello? It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect be ready for it Twenty-four hours ago I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man that is my sister Emma Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, Mm. all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com <laughs> 